So this is my question. Does the LME retain its stature as the global benchmark of industrial metal prices if it begins taking its prices from Shanghai? That is my question. Does it retain its primary place in the global economy as the benchmark of many metal prices if it begins taking its prices from the Shanghai Futures Exchange? Right, an interesting question, isn't it? Because I have this story here that at Davos in Switzerland, where they are having the World Economic Forum, the LME CEO seemingly casually told a Reuters reporter that they are beginning to create the first contracts with the Shanghai Futures Exchange in 2024. And let me just add, don't forget who owns the LME. That was sold in 2012 to Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited. And as it says here in ChatGPT, HKEX, Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited, acquired LME in 2012, marking a significant step in connecting the financial markets of East and West. The acquisition was aimed at strengthening HKEX's position in the global commodities market, particularly in terms of metal trading. Now, again, here we have this story from Reuters via mining.com, January 15th, fresh from Davos here. LME CEO aims to have first contracts with Shanghai Futures Exchange in 2024. The LME aims to have pilot contracts using prices from the Shanghai Futures Exchange this year, its chief executive told Reuters on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum annual meeting. My aim would be to have the pilot contracts out this year, or at the very least, a clear roadmap of which contracts and their specifications, end quote, LME CEO Matthew Chamberlain told the Reuters Global Markets Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Reuters exclusively reported last month that the LME was planning new metals contracts using SHFE prices, which is, again, the Shanghai Futures Exchange. The specific contracts to be launched with SHFE were still under discussion. So, to me, this is all very interesting in terms of how it is being rolled out. This isn't a press release. This is a revealing to a Reuters reporter, again, on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum, so an interesting way to release this information. And further, there are no real specifics, but the steel complex would have the most potential as it was a very growth area, Chamberlain added, making it sound like the reason that they are working with Shanghai in terms of sourcing their prices out of Shanghai is because Metals in the steel complex are a very growth area. Now, none of that explains, however, why the pricing wouldn't come out of London over Shanghai. I guess the underlying assumption is more steel is going through Shanghai, and therefore we're going to get a better price, a more accurate price. I mean, isn't that the underlying assumption here? And what does that signify to us as we step back, try not to speculate too much on this. I mean, what can we assume from this? To me, it's kind of an ongoing theme that, you know, we've discussed on this show and many other commentators have noted, a kind of sign, one could argue, of the ongoing shift in economic power from West to East. Is it not? I mean, maybe I'm making too much of this, but if all of a sudden we start pricing steel, 
which is what's being discussed here in Shanghai, rather than London, for example, isn't that a sign? So let's continue here on this article. Quote, steel is a very high growth area for us. Our Turkey steel scrap volumes are up 88% year on year. Again, making it all about the growth story here. On the issue of Russian metals in warehouses, Chamberlain said that he saw it exiting as well as coming in. Quote, that backs up the anecdotal message from the market, namely that much of the world is still consuming Russian metal, end quote. So very interesting story there. And we actually have another story. Aluminum stocks of Russian origin in LME warehouses rose to 90% in December, up from 80% in November. So all to say, I mean, to me, this is a significant story. And if I had to speculate on that, it seemed like the way the information was released Again, to use the exact words of this article on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum is a way to downplay the significance of what it means. But if we're to take a step back and look at the big picture, you know, pretend this is a history book. Is this not significant that all of a sudden, if the pricing of major, you know, metals complexes such as steel, I mean, what else are they discussing? I mean, they're just talking about steel right now. What other metals might be priced out of Shanghai, right? And again, now the LME is owned by Hong Kong, which is now a Chinese company. So all just very interesting there as we continue to navigate this landscape. I mean, I think of Jeffrey Christian. We see Iowa results last night there for the Republican presidential primary. And I think of Jeffrey Christian. And if you haven't heard that interview on December 26th that we did, where Jeffrey Christian comprehensively analyzes the precious metal markets within the context of 2024 and where we are heading and really saying, you know, the thing to watch out for this year is political volatility. As many people have pointed out, and you may have probably heard, you know, 40% of the world is heading for election this year. So that in itself is potentially a source of volatility. Now, one other election that I've been following, which has not got much press, is what's going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Of course, they had an election December 20th. It was highly contested after President Felix Tshisekedi won a landslide 74% victory over his political rivals. Now, there has been a development on this. And of course, as many of you know who listen to this show, there is the massive Ivanhoe Mines Kamoa Kakula Mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo, also known as the DRC. So this is no small matter if we start getting volatility here in the DRC, because as we were seeing just over in Panama there, with first quantum, you know, all of a sudden 400,000 tons of copper being removed from the market, and it looked like Ivanhoe Mines is basically producing somewhere along the lines of 400,000 tons a year. From what I saw, from what I remember, a not insignificant amount. And as I mentioned last week, the surplus for 2024 was thought to be 600,000 tons. So we're really, you know, dancing on the line here of surplus and deficit in the copper market, interestingly, while we remain, you know, I think we're at $3.78 a pound. So just the latest on this story, this is France 24, DRC Constitutional Court confirms Chisiketi won election. So the Democratic Republic of Congo's constitutional court on Tuesday confirmed President Felix Chisiketi landslide victory in a December election for a second term in the poor but mineral-rich, massive Central African country. 
So that is interesting. And the State Department has also come out. This is on state.gov. Matthew Miller, department spokesperson. The United States congratulates Felix Antoine Chisichetti Chisolombo on his re-election to a second term as president of the Democratic Republic of Congo. We also congratulate the Congolese people for their commitment to making their voices heard through the electoral process. Now the important task of building national cohesion calls for leadership, accountability, and inclusivity at all levels. And one more line here. Regrettably, as noted by domestic and international observation missions, insecurity, logistical issues, and preparatory shortcomings created significant delays and barriers to voting on Election Day. For many, incidents of fraud and corruption raised doubts about the integrity of the results. So that is where a lot of the pushback is coming from, from opposition. And finally here, just a Agence France Press article on VOA, I believe, voiceofafricanews.com. UN sounds alarm at rising hate speech in DRC. It's on January 7th, so a little over a week ago. The United Nations top human rights official voiced alarm on Sunday about rising ethnic tensions and calls to violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo following disputed elections. Massive delays and bureaucratic chaos marred the December 20th ballots to choose the president, lawmakers for national and provincial assemblies, and local councillors. So far, the election commission has only announced the result of the presidential vote, a landslide victory for incumbent Felix Chisichetti that the opposition has rejected as a sham. And here's the quote from the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk. Quote, I am very concerned about the rise in ethnic-based hate speech and incitement to violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So we discuss a lot about supply chains here. And it seems to me that, you know, for all the discussion on critical metals and supply chains, this story out of Congo is remarkably underplayed. Most news sites are not really connecting the dots between the copper supply chain and this election, which is why we are here on our ongoing speculative journey here to try and uncover and figure out what's going on in this world from a natural resources perspective. So hello and welcome back. I hope you are enjoying the show. And coming up this episode, we have Annalie Lundstrom, Chief Alliance Officer at Veratio, and she's going to discuss AI and how it is transforming the mining industry, whether it is exploration and getting real-time results on the ground that can be acted on within seconds rather than weeks, or how they are processing materials and how it is helping create more efficiencies and save money and everything. So an interesting discussion here with Annalie Lundstrom, Chief Alliance Officer at Veratio, as our feature content, and we have a ton of very interesting news stories here as well on uranium, rare earths, and what is going on here. A bit of a deceptive headline. We'll get into it. Lots to look forward to. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on X at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, a very interesting week for uranium. Uranium price jumps to 15-year high as top miner flag shortfall. This is Cecilia Jamazmi at Mining.com. Uranium prices jumped on Friday to an almost 15-year high after the world's largest producer, Kazakhstan's Kazatomprom, warned it's likely to fall short of its output targets over the next two years. The miner cited shortages of sulfuric acid, 
and construction delays at newly developed deposits as the main factors behind ongoing production challenges, which it said could persist into 2025. Now, most of you will know that Kazatomprom and Kazakhstan basically, don't want to say they killed the market, but they really oversupplied the market. That really ended, as far as I understand, the last big bull market in uranium in 2007. That is my understanding. And of course, Fukushima in 2011 there did not help. Now, apparently, according to, I believe it was Tim Gitzel at Cameco, Kazatomprom has gotten the memo in the sense of they now know not to oversupply the market. But, and you know, this was discussion that was being had in the last, let's say, three or four years. Now, all that being pretext to say that Kazakhstan's Kazatomprom is a major player in the uranium market. Let's continue here. And we have a quote from Kazatomprom in a statement, quote, despite the ongoing active search for alternative sources of sulfuric acid supply, so a supply chain issue, not enough sulfuric acid, current forecasts indicate that the company may find it difficult to achieve 90% production levels compared to subsoil use contract levels. So it's not because of not enough uranium. Sounds like not enough sulfuric acid. How interesting is that? Sulfuric acid is a favorite among producers to extract uranium from the raw ore due to its low cost and efficiency for different types of ores. Kazatomprom noted that its guidance for next year could also be affected if supply snags continue throughout 2024 and if it isn't able to comply with scheduled construction works. Also, one could argue if you were trying to take supply off of the market, if you were to take basically a more alternative narrative perspective, you could also say, well, that's a pretty good excuse. You know, unfortunately, we can't release as much this year. So unfortunately, the price of uranium is probably going to have to go up because we don't have, unfortunately, enough sulfuric acid. Unfortunate. Just a final thing on this story. I mean, what a chart. That is a scary looking chart in uranium. It goes basically from $30 a pound straight up in the last few months to just under $100 here. It looks like $97. And how much did it go up to here? Do we have that? Yeah, here it is. The spot price of the radioactive metal has more than doubled in 2023, and it is currently trading at $97.45 a pound, still far from the triple-digit figures achieved in 2007 and followed after the 2011 Fukushima disaster in Japan. The price increases come as 24 nations, including the United States, Japan, Canada, Britain, and France, pledged last month in Dubai at the 28th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, known as COP28, to triple nuclear power capacity by 2050. So in two weeks, we should have, they're very hard to get, by the way, nuclear energy experts right now. They are in very high demand. Uh, but in two weeks, we should have John Gorman back on the program the head of the Canadian Nuclear Agency. So that is something to look forward to. Now, let's continue here on another story, which is also incredibly interesting here with geopolitical consequence with a deceptive headline, I would argue. China's rare earth exports hit five-year high on demand from EV high-tech sectors. This is Reuters via mining.com. So what problem? Chinese rare earth exports are at a five-year high. Let's look closer. China's exports of rare earths in 2023 rose 7.3% from the prior year, customs data showed on Friday, boosted by competitive prices and growing overseas demand from electric vehicle makers and other high-tech sectors. The world's largest producer of rare earths shipped 52,300 metric tons of the minerals abroad last year, 
the highest since 2018, data from the General Administration of Customs showed. Demand for rare earths picked up in line with the rapid development of new energy vehicles, wind power, and inverter air conditioners, analysts said. You know, it doesn't say so here. Actually, it does. I was about to say, what about weapons? The minerals are also used widely in lasers, military equipment, and consumer electronics. Like, I would assume that might have something to do with rising exports, unfortunately. China has been engaged in an escalating battle over control of critical minerals and last year introduced restrictions on exports of germanium, gallium, and some graphite products which are used in semiconductors and electric vehicle batteries. And of course, we discussed that in depth on this show. Now, here is the rub, as they would say. So yearly, we are up to a five-year high. We're up 7% on the year, so really... What problem as far as rare earth exports from China? Looks like everything's good, right? Here is the rub. China's exports of the 17 mineral classified as rare earths fell 18% in December. This is at the bottom of the article, I might add, from the previous month to 3,400 tons. So falling month on month from December to November, 18%, the customs data showed. So exports, that was down 20% year-on-year from December 2022. So when you look on a month-by-month basis, and don't forget those rare earth processing technology they're restricting has been in the last couple of months here. And here's a further, I would say, just as significant piece of information. Final line of the article. China's imports of rare earths last month were up 45% on the year at 16,000 tons while the 2023 total climbed 44% from a year earlier to 175,000, almost 176,000 tons. So they are restricting in December exports of rare earth while simultaneously dramatically increasing imports. So what does that do to the supply at the end of the day? Ultimately, much more rare earths are staying in China, net on net, right? Very interesting. So I would argue a very deceptive headline, China rare earth exports hit five-year high on demand from EV and high-tech sectors. I mean, I would just invert this article, frankly. Reuters via mining.com. Continuing on, iron ore price drops as China's central bank rate move defies expectations. Reuters via mining.com. So I guess there's an expectation out there that China will ease. And that didn't happen. Iron ore futures prices dropped for a second consecutive session on Monday as top consumer China defied market expectations and stood pat on its medium-term interest rate, leaving traders disappointed. And just scrolling down a bit, China's central bank left the medium-term policy rate unchanged on Monday, defying market expectations as signs of a weaker currency continued to limit the scope of monetary easing. And this, of course, according to Pei Hao, a Shanghai-based analyst at the international brokerage FIS, this is impacting the iron ore market. Quote, the weakness in the ore market is partly because macroeconomic uncertainties mounted after the central bank did not cut rates. Continuing on, the LME to suspend 10% of listed metals brands until they submit responsible sourcing audit. So we've discussed this for years here. And I believe Robert Friedland actually discussed this as well, this idea that there would be a price for ESG copper and a price for non-ESG copper, for example. Also Reuters, via mining.com, 
The London Metal Exchange plans to suspend or delist 10% of its listed metal brands in coming months until their producers provide it with their responsible sourcing reports, the exchange said on Monday. The move is a step in the campaign which the world's largest and oldest metals trading venue owned by Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing launched in 2019 seeking to clean up global trade chains from metal tainted by child labor, corruption, or conflict financing. The LME, quote, fully expects that a proportion of these brands will be able to relist in due course once they have completed the work to address the requirements of the policy, end quote, it said in a statement. So very interesting development there. And another LME story, shares of Russian aluminum in LME warehouses rises to 90% after UK curbs. So share of Russian aluminum in LME warehouses rises to 90%. Let's see what that means. This is also Reuters via mining.com. The share of available aluminum stocks of Russian origin in London Metal Exchange approved warehouses rose to 90% in December from 79% in November, data on the exchange's website showed on Wednesday. So how I interpret this information is of the amount of aluminum available on the LME, 90% is of Russian origin interestingly, suggesting that if you cut off Russian aluminum, you might not have too much metal left, if I am interpreting what this is saying correctly. The rise follows a restriction imposed by Britain from December 15th on UK entities and individuals taking physical delivery of Russian-made base metals, part of wider sanctions on Moscow for its war in Ukraine. The crackdown, along with muted demand in the physical market, contributed to additional deliveries to the LME-registered warehouses, dubbed as a market of last resort. And we have a quote from an analyst, quote, people are getting more nervous about holding the Russian inventory, end quote. And we have a quote from the LME, who said in a separate comment, quote, with regard to recent UK government sanctions, the LME is actively monitoring for market orderliness in respect of Russian metal, end quote. And it added, quote, Russian metal continued to flow through the warehousing network during December. And here's also information on copper. The share of Russian origin copper stocks increased to 43% in December, from 40% the previous month, the LME said. The amount of Russian copper in inventories rose to 60,000 tons from 56,000 tons. Russian nickel share rose to 31% from 26% as the amount increased to 17,700 tons in December from 11,000 tons in November. So very interesting here. It looks like a huge proportion of these major metals such as nickel, copper, and aluminum are of Russian origin now because, of course, UK you know, residents and businesses are not going to want the Russian metal. And I suppose if you have the choice, if you're a even an international buyer, you probably just opt for the non-Russian metal because that's lower risk. Why wouldn't you? Very interesting development there. And finally, a story from Saudi Arabia from Colin McClelland in Riyadh. So the northern miners Colin McClelland went to Saudi Arabia for the Futures Minerals Forum. And as he said here in the headline, the buzzword is partnership. Barrett Gold's Mark Brisso and Valet's Mark Kudifani like Saudi Arabia's plan to be a regional financial partnership hub because others racing to develop critical minerals projects won't be able to afford everything they want in a depressed funding market. The kingdom, with its vast oil wealth, wants to retain its energy dominance into the green metals era. It's positioning itself as the leader of what it calls a super region that includes Africa and the Middle East, 
and stretches into Asia to host a third of global resources. The country's third annual Future Minerals Forum attracted about 15,000 delegates this week and may have generated some $20 billion in deals, according to organizers. Barrick CEO Brissot said it was unrealistic for every country to expect they can participate fully in the industry's four main sectors of exploring, producing, processing, and supplying, but that's what he heard at a ministerial meeting. They don't have enough cash and will end up slashing budgets for their other sectors like education and healthcare. Finally here, Brissot said, quote, for those countries that are still building on a nascent mining industry, start with the first two steps, exploration and mining, end quote, he said on a conference panel. Continuing, downstream investment is a tough business, big skills gap, the infrastructure you need is a big step again. Why not partner as per the concept around the super region and get the best of both worlds and negotiate with partners on return for providing materials, end quote. Finally, Kutifani, chairman of Valley Base Metals, agreed with Brissot about supporting exploration and mining development over more risky processing. Quote, countries go broke trying to get there too quick, end quote, he said. Well, as they say, mining is a very difficult business, and it seems like Mark Kutifani and Mark Brissot are trying to let people know it is easier said than done. You're dealing with very real-world challenges in the mining industry. It is not abstract. So you can read the whole story on Colin McClellan's trip to Saudi Arabia. It is fascinating on northernminer.com. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market for context to see the price of money. The U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.01%. That is only down 0.01% on the week from last week. And turning to the U.K. 10-year gilt, it is up 0.02% at 3.79% for the 10-year. And finally, the Italy 10-year bond is down 0.02% at 3.8% on the 10-year. So, I would say, you know, relative to the last few weeks and months, frankly, a relatively benign and mute week on the bond market there, probably a source of relief for some. Turning to precious metals, gold, another, you know, fairly unchanged asset here. Gold is a dollar higher at $2,044.20 per ounce. And turning to silver, it is 11 cents lower at $23.25 per pound, so still below $25 as gold remains above 2000 Quite interesting. Platinum is at $913.72 per ounce. That is $31 lower than last week. And palladium is at $971.77 per ounce. That is $21 lower than last week. And this convergence between the price of platinum and palladium continues here. Again, platinum at $913 with palladium at $971. I mean, they're getting pretty close together here after quite a disparity over the last few years. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is down two cents at $3.78 per pound. Iron ore is down $3 at $137.22 per metric ton. Aluminum is also down two cents at $1 even per pound. Lead is a penny higher at 94 cents per pound, and nickel is 3 cents lower 
at $7.30 per pound. Tin is unchanged at $11.17 per pound. Cobalt is also unchanged at $13.22 per pound. Lithium is lower at $13.31 per kilogram. That is 16 cents lower than last week and still continuing to hit new lows here in this precious battery material. White gold, as it's sometimes called, continuing on. Uranium continues to climb now at $92.50 per pound. That is $1.50 higher than last week. And zinc also higher at $1.16 per pound. That is two cents higher than last week. Zooming out, a remarkably mute week, one would say, in the precious metals, even in the bond market, in the industrial metals. I suppose uranium continuing to edge higher and lithium continuing to edge lower are the real standouts while everything else seemingly muddles along here on its journey. Again, copper at $3.78, still below $4, and those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Annalie Lundstrom, Chief Alliance Officer at Veratio, for the first time to the Northern Miner Podcast to discuss mining technology and the role that AI is playing in improving the efficiency at mines and what it is doing in a real-world practical way to improve mine sites. I hope you enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Annalie Lundstrom, Chief Alliance Officer at Verocio. Annalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So Verocio deals with mining technology and, of course, artificial intelligence. AI is a major topic that has been discussed in the last couple of years. And, of course, it's going to affect the mining industry. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how AI is changing the mining business from your perspective. Yes, certainly I can. So AI and machine learning is buzzword heavily used in the mining industry as in other industries, uh, of course. But AI, from our point of view, we use AI to solve real problems that we're facing in the mining industry today. We can improve logging, we can do things much faster when we have the capacity and power of computers, and also the, the massive volume of data that we're actually generating today in the industry. With Through AI, we can use the data generated over the years and being generated right now to solve real-time problems. Okay, excellent. And, you know, sometimes the mining industry gets described as a slow moving, uh, backward looking industry. What is your perspective? I mean, some mines you hear are quite advanced. I guess it's the full spectrum. I mean, I guess data is a very important element for miners these days, or at least some of them. Uh, what's your view on how up to date mining companies are? I think now mining companies are very up to date. I've been in this industry for 15 years now, and uh, we've seen rapid change over the last three years, I would say. Initially, I can tell that people were a bit afraid of the power of data and AI come and steal our jobs. But now I've noticed that people are a bit more relaxed and understand through this type of technology we have that can generate data and what we can do with data that can actually empower the geologists, make them 
use their time for doing more valuable tasks than maybe collecting the data or interpreting the data. Maybe they can actually start to make decisions based on what the AI can generate. It sounds like to me, from my understanding of AI, that in a sense, it's all about data to a certain degree. And I'm kind of glad to hear that things aren't as you know retrograde as sometimes as is described. So then tell us then, with AI and mining technology, what kind of things is it doing to help improve a mining business? There's a lot of things you can do with the power of data and improvements to, to mining clients. Anything from reducing the repetitive tasks of logging and measuring drill core pieces to actually figuring out what type of, type of rock types we're looking at, the lithology, identifying ore zones, identifying what's waste and doing that in a consistent way. I think we know that there's a lot of subjectivity in the industry, but if we can have data uh, helping us making these decisions and if these decisions are maybe a bit um, empowered by, by AI, uh, then we can take this industry to the next level, which I believe is crucial in order to tackle the massive challenges we have in front of us, where we need to find so much critical minerals very fast. And we also are facing uh, a workforce that is being reduced. We need to find more people that wants to enter into this industry. And I think by having mining technology and also AI capabilities will actually encourage the next generation to look into this space and see how they can take part and also contribute to making this world a much greener world. So it sounds like it makes things quite a bit more efficient and removes redundancies, let's say, to a certain degree, maybe even speeds things up from the sounds of it. Now, are you focused mostly then at Verocio on exploration or processing of materials or both? You find our technologies both in, in exploration and in mining processes, but we do work together with the research institutes and, and science as well. But we are improving how things are done in, in exploration mainly by providing data fast, data that you can use to make fast decisions and then of course uh, determine how to proceed with your projects. Time is of importance in exploration. Indeed. So then on a practical level then, let's say we're drilling a property. How is AI, how is it actually helping? So you're getting data and then it's processing it in real time. Like, Tell us a little bit more about the direct application here. Yeah, AI is not something magic that happens. It requires someone at this stage, a human, to define a problem that we want to solve. And then we also need to have access to consistent, high quality data. And when you have that combination of high quality data, maybe that's a combination of continuous uh, XRF scanning combined with images, hyperspectral, and you have that information, uh, you will then be able to very fast uh, determine the lithology and do the logging of your project. So very much comes down to defining what type of power do you want from the AI and what type of data do you have available? And then you can actually start to have a massive efficiency improvements and also quality improvements. I would imagine, and I imagine financial improvements as well. I mean, drilling is such an expensive business to make these drill holes, from my understanding. And so if you're able to help, say, reduce or make it more accurate, the kinds of drilling that you're doing, I imagine you must be able to save a lot of money in the end on your exploration work. 
Yes, you are. There is a lot of, of aspects on, on this. When I came into this industry, as I said, 15 years ago, I actually came in as a student studying entrepreneurship. And we happened to be focusing on mining industry. And uh, it surprised me how massive decisions we make on the logging data that we have available. We're not utilizing everything that we have extracted during the drilling. And that's, that triggered us to, to start the company that I've been in heavily involved in for the last 15 years to tackle these, these challenges. So if you have data available fast, you can make more informed decisions. You uh, are more consistent in the decision making. And that's important because continuing exploration projects and also turning that into mining uh, operations, that's that requires major investment decisions and it's a lot of risk included. So with data and fast access to data, your risk reduce. Okay, excellent. And in terms of the processing of materials, you said the focus was mostly on exploration, but you also do mining tech also for the processing of the minerals. How does AI help in that regard? Yes, yeah, so we have uh, equipment installed in mining operations where it's near mine uh, exploration ongoing. It helps to have full detailed information of what you have in the ground. It doesn't only help for the exploration, it actually feeds information to further down in the value chain. It's important to understand what you have in the ground already when, when you're exploring in order to be able to design your processes, but also understand what, what will we have in this part of the ore body five years from now and how will we be able to to mix that and deliver the high quality products that we were selling to our clients. For example, then just on the practical level, so you'll have a better idea of your ore body. And as far as actually the processing, I mean, in a sense is the theory that you won't have to say, use as much energy, let's say, in order to extract, say those critical minerals that you're describing. Is that one of the outcomes one would hope for? It can be a lot of different things, but if you have better understanding of your mineralogy and your body, that could be a better way of designing your processes later on. But it saves a lot of resources along the line of exploration and mining processing to have access to fast information and also to have it consistently. You can make a lot of savings on, on time and optimizing of budgets and optimizing of your resources. There's a lot of improvements that are being made through the introduction of technology and AI. Then tell us about Verosho then, focuses on mining technology, like, you know, what are some of the big things that Verosho does in order to improve a mining business? So Verosho, we have the best core scanning technologies in the world, but we also have more technologies. We have very impressive uh, downhole technologies. But the most important thing here is that we can combine the information that we get from our downhole tools with the results and the data that we generate from the scan. When you have this detailed information, you have what we call ore body knowledge. Uh, you have the information that's needed in order to understand what's in the ground and how will we be able to extract this. And so what kind of product would that be? Was that like a user interface? Like, uh, how does that work? I guess there's sensors. Somehow you need to get data, I guess, and, and then you help process the data. Is that fair? Yeah, yes, that's fair. We are a hardware software data company with AI capabilities. So we have sensors, we have advanced, uh, unique patented sensors, which extract data and it extracts the data in a consistent, high quality 
format, which is very important. That's the most important ingredients to do proper AI. Then on top of that, we have software, cloud-based software, where we display the data so the clients get access to the data. We have software where they can uh, use different types of tools to generate more data sets. And then we have uh, developed very strong AI capabilities in-house. So you're not just delivering the results to the clients. You take the combination of, for example, images, high resolution geochemistry, and then you are helping the client to do lithology logging, things that would normally take the clients three weeks to do. We can now do uh, the same type of job we do in 50 seconds. Incredible. So there's a real-time aspect to this. So you can adjust almost immediately rather than having to shut down, keep workers on staff for three weeks as you wait for your results. So this could become a huge efficiency. Yes, it's a massive efficiency improver. It's like what we see with AI in, in all other industries as well. It's like the chat GTP, but for the mining industry. Now, are your clients, are they large and small? Like you offer, you know, like as far as products, like are they too expensive? Some of these small exploration companies might be one or two people. So how do you tackle that issue? Does your technology apply to all sizes of mining companies? Yes, our technology applies to all sizes of mining exploration companies. It doesn't require a CapEx investment from the public clients. It's more a type of a service or a product as a service, which they can easily have access to and start to benefit from the power of data. Being a small company and being a large company, uh, it doesn't matter. You still have the same easy access to the technology. Being a smaller company, maybe it's also easier to change procedures and processes and implement new technologies. The larger entities sometimes um, takes longer time to make changes. So just as we're wrapping up here then, where do you see this all going, this AI in mining? Uh, what do you see coming down the pipeline? Like, what do you see when you look ahead in this industry? What are you excited about in a sense? I'm excited about the things we will discover that we don't know today. We have clients that discover new things on a daily basis on their deposits. They have a hypothesis of this deposit is this, and we are exploring for this metal. But then with the power of data, then they actually identify new things. We have had clients exploring for copper and gold, and suddenly they see that they have a rare earth deposit. So when you're investing all this money, and then you have the possibility to actually get access and unlock all the information that you actually have in front of you, that's when we can see huge changes happening and improvements happening in this industry. Very positive that we would be able to solve the challenges with access to critical minerals, but we need technology and we need smart people. Indeed. And yeah, you kind of anticipated where I wanted to uh, finish off with, which is just on Europe. I mean, you're based in Sweden. How feasible, how likely when you hear the policymakers discussing, you know, attempts at getting all the critical minerals we need, maybe a little bit locally and everything. How do you see, as someone who's kind of deep in the business, uh, how feasible or how likely is it that Europe will reach its goals as far as getting the critical minerals they need for their supply chain? The mentality in Sweden has changed quite a lot. It used to be, oh, are you working with mining? That's dirty and filthy. We don't need mining. We can recycle everything. To now, when everyone is driving an electrical vehicle, they start to figure out we do need to get the metals from the ground. And it used to be we can take it from someone else's backyard. 
But now when we notice that the importance of having access to critical minerals more on a regional scale, people are becoming a bit more aware in Sweden too. And that makes me positive because then we understand we need to mine the minerals where we find them. We cannot decide where we put the mine. We need to have the mine where we make the discoveries. That's the reality of mining. Okay, excellent. So do you think ultimately Europe will reach its goals or do you think there's a lot of work to do? Like you're saying, the mindset is changing. I'm noticing it too. I mean, it, it reminds me of, you know, uh, Cameco and uranium. Uranium used to be, you know, radioactive waste was the first association. But what Cameco did for 10 years was say, we are the solution to climate change and carbon emissions. And I feel like I'm seeing the same a transformation happening with mining, which the first thing people think is a dirty, destructive industry, and now it's becoming a part of the solution. Again, do you think Europe is going to achieve its goals, or do you have any thoughts on that, if they can do what they're planning? What we need to solve in a short period of time is very ambitious, but I'm always positive towards ambitious goals, because then that's when you're pushing the limits. So I will continue to stay positive. Annalie Lundstrom, Chief Alliance Officer at Verocio, thank you for joining us on this week's Northern Miner podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you once again to Annalie Lundstrom, Chief Alliance Officer at Veratio, for joining us on this week's Northern Miner podcast to discuss AI. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again. Fascinating developments happening in the natural resource sector with global implications on economies and politics around the world. Just absolutely fascinating. And many more fascinating guests to come. John Gorman, Paul from the Sirius Report, and more. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. <laughs>